0: Hey everyone, this is Las Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys. And on this week's podcast, we are doing our next Eastern Conference team preview. I preview the Philadelphia 76ers with Jackson Frank of Liberty Ballers. And we talk about Philly's draft day trade, Ben Simmons's offensive repertoire, and how Markel Fultz is a large swing piece for this team moving forward. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, like, and leave comments. Please leave comments on the post on Detroit Bad Boys. It's the best way for us to build the podcast according to what the fans want. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, which you should be doing because it's the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis this season and every season. With all that said, it's time to go to work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I'm your host, Lazarus Jackson. Uh, I'm pleased today to be joined by Jackson Frank. Jackson is of uh, Liberty Ballers, and we're going to be talking about the Sixers today. He's also uh, writes for B-Ball Breakdown, uh, Jacob Goldstein's new thing, the, the B-Ball Index. And he's also a, uh, a member or a, a participant at the uh, student newspaper for Gonzaga. Jackson, that's a, that's a lot of hats, man. How are you doing? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I got a lot of different places I uh, my writing shows up, but I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for bearing with me through all the uh, the pre-show technical difficulties we've had.
1: Yeah, no worries. My my uh, dinosaur of a computer doesn't make things any easier when I try and do things like this.
0: Yeah, I remember what it was like in college. Being like, I need some new technology right
1: away. <laughs> yeah, well, I, di- I didn't actually have a my own laptop until nine months ago, eight months ago though. So anything's better than what I used to have, which is just a, an iPad and a, a keyboard and going to libraries and stuff to do a lot of my work. So I uh, can't complain that much.
0: I mean, I'm getting like flashbacks to college. My college experience <laughs> is like eight years ago now. It's <laughs> way too long ago. So uh, I got you want to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, you, like I said, you're you're over at Liberty Ballers. Um, I want to start you off with the question we uh, we start everyone else on these uh, these team previews on which is what is the one word that sums up Phillies fans feelings after this offseason?
1: season? Um, the one word uh, I'm going to try and create a hyphenated word here, but uh, this optimistically disappointed. I think that's two words obviously, but um, I think there was a lot of talk about them being in the the hunt for one of the, the star wings that were uh, that going to change teams or potentially change teams and LeBron, Kawhi, and Paul George. And obviously none of those guys are going to be Sixers next year. Um, but I think there's enough hope with internal growth and, and Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala and, and the rookie pieces that they drafted um, that they're going to be a better team than they were last year. So um, I think there's some initial disappointment, but the general consensus is that they've kind of talked themselves into the idea that they can still be a pretty dang good team and even better than last year.
0: So that kind of that kind of leads us into one of the questions I was going to ask you, which was like, would you have included like whatever it would have taken to acquire a Kawhi or uh, like, would you have included like a Markel Fultz in a, in a Kawhi trade if that's what San Antonio was looking for?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think immediately after uh, Kawhi was traded, Toronto, Zach Lowe of ESPN had a piece uh, kind of divulging a lot of the details and doing his is a well thought out and articulated column, and I think it said that the Spurs wanted one of Embiid or Simmons, and that's just the asking price. There is just way, way too high considering the the team control those guys are under for the next six or seven years, whatever it is. Um, I, I can see the idea of uh, trading away Fultz. I mean, I think I'm still really high on Fultz personally, um, but I, but I see the I see the idea there, especially because Kawhi said that uh, one of the places he would stay potentially or would, would resign with, would be uh, Philadelphia. Um, so I think a, a trade centered around maybe like a, a Robert Covington or Dara Sarge and then Fultz and a pick seemed pretty fair. Um, but even then I was hesitant just because you don't know what is going to look like when he gets back. Uh, I'm optimistic that he's going to be really good still, um, but there's still a lot of uncertainty there and in, in his future beyond uh, this upcoming season. So, I understand why why the two sides between the Spurs and Sixers didn't reach a deal. Um, the asking price seems a little high, but I think uh, I would have been willing to probably deal deal uh, Fultz in a trade for Kawhi because Kawhi Leonard is really, really, really good at basketball.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think it's it's interesting because as we talk about uh, like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid as the future of this team moving forward, Kawhi is a guy who in addition to being a top three player like would fit alongside those two guys really well and so yeah
1: yeah i mean he's not i mean obviously he's not as good as lebron and, and whatnot but he's what six or seven years younger so if you can get that guy to resign you're pretty after a, a healthy season and all nba type season again you're pretty confident you're going to get a guy who's going to be a perennial top five top ten player for the next half decade and and once he's not that good, then you expect M B and, and Simmons to kind of take take the reins again.
0: Yeah. So after not, or I guess before not trading for Kawhi, uh, this team made a different kind of trade to get some help on the wing. They initially drafted uh, Michael Bridges and then traded him to Phoenix f- and for a future first and the rights to draft Zaire Smith uh, out of Texas Tech. How'd you feel about uh, that trade? How would you feel about that kind of swap of the wings?
1: yeah I think I mean initially i was I was pretty bummed um, just because I, I really liked what like Mikhail bridge's game. I think he's the guy he's the kind of guy who could come in and just be a, an instant impact guy hit some threes play some solid defense um, and obviously he' he's have a little more ceiling beyond down the road um, but I think considering what the comments the the organization and Brett Brown made, the the day of the draft and the day after, uh, the fact that Zyra Smith was their one B on their big board, and the fact they got an unprotected first round pick out of it, I think that's tremendous value. Uh, I'm not quite as high on Zaire Smith as some some Philly fans and Philly writers are, um, but I still think uh, I can't knock the organization for getting the guy they had basically had number two on their draft board plus a first round pick uh, down the road. So uh, I was I'm skeptical. I, I I was skeptical. Of, his potential role as a rookie, just because non-lottery picks on playoff teams rarely do they they make a huge impact. But um, he's his athleticism is insane. He's probably a top fifteen, top twenty athlete already in the league, and that's that can, that's a conservative estimate. Um, but obviously, that his ball handling and and shooting uh, have a long way to go in terms of being projectable and uh, functional at the NBA level. So uh, I understand the vision, and I I can't knock them for doing what they did, but. I'm still a little weary of uh Zaire Smith's long term outlook, but that that first round pick is a really nice trade chip or just asset down the road either way.
0: Yeah, I was really I was really bummed about the trade because I thought Bridges was such a good fit in Philly. Um you know like Marco Bellinelli was uh he had a huge impact for that team in the second half of the year, but you also knew like he wasn't long for that team. And Bridges was a guy who can shoot off motion uh like a Bellinelli, and he's obviously like a little bit of a better a team defender and an on-ball defender. So I thought Bridges would have fit in kind of seamlessly into like a, a bench role with this team. Smith, before the injury, like I, I've imagined like they would do – they would try and do some similar things. But like you said, like his ball handling and shooting isn't at the level of a Bridges or a Bellinelli. And yeah. so I, I question kind of how he's going to work uh, in the short term offensively. Like, yeah, that I, I want
1: – before the injury news broke, and I'm sure I'll still write about it at some point, but I wanted to write about whether or not like they can play Ben Simmons and Zyra Smith together as this upcoming season, just because they're both not really shooters, and and obviously Zyra's a, a lot more willing. But uh, given that shooting isn't necessarily a strength of this team, the roster as is, uh, I'm really interested to see if they can play those guys together because they're that's probably one of the best uh, like athletic duos in the NBA. Those guys are athletic freaks but uh neither one is really a a floor spacer so um like you said i i think bridges was a better plug and, plug and play rookie um but down the road if they see more upside uh, i totally understand it um I, I truthfully my 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 the guy i wanted i wanted them to get miles bridges uh it's kind of a tangent but i thought his his ability to create off the dribble is something they needed i mean robert Covington's a tremendous player but you saw some of the limitations in that that series against the celtics when they forced him to put the ball on the ground he just couldn't or on the floor. Um, he couldn't really uh, punish them and make plays off the dribble and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, like you, I'm skeptical of, of Zaire Smith's role in his rookie year just because he's not really much of a shooter, um, whereas both Bridges, especially Mikhail Bridges, are. So we'll see what happens. But um, Brett Brown's proven to be pretty creative in his lineup, uh, tinkering and whatnot uh, when he has the pieces there so i think i think zaire get get some time but i don't think he's going to be a top 7 or 8 rotation piece as, as a rookie
0: the other bridges that's an that's an interesting uh conceptual fit i'm a i went to michigan state so i watched a lot of miles bridges bridges this past year and uh his off the dribble game left like a little bit to be desired as a as a as a 3 but like as a 4 where he's just like attacking closeouts or um or getting getting dribble handoffs i think like he could have functionally like fit in pretty well. He was also like a really good spot up shooter. Yeah. But, uh less so off motion, I think.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he's he still. I mean, he, his. The, I think the big thing that helped him is in terms of his his outlook in the NBA was obviously that that uh, free throw percentage took a big jump from his uh, freshman and sophomore year, and pretty good shooter. Uh, his shot selections a little shaky. He kind of falls in love with the long twos, um, but I think when you give a guy a pretty clear role and tell him his path of playing time is hitting threes and. Can close out some playing solid defense and making some plays off the dribble for others. Um, you can kind of shore up some of those holes just because in college when you're when he just there wasn't a lot of other really strong uh, shot creators. In Michigan State last year, so uh, I, I'm a big fan of what he brings, and uh, I'm excited to see what he can do in in Charlotte. But he was a guy I thought really could have been a a nice offensive piece, especially because the Sixers have a ton of great def- defenders. So. Uh, I think just letting a guy kind of come off the bench and create for himself and others a little bit and shoot the ball would be, would have been a really fun, fun piece, uh, both in the short term and long term.
0: So after uh, an an off season like this, that's relatively quiet, I think uh, would be fair to say, what are your uh, expectations for this team moving forward? They're relying a lot on, uh, internal growth which is fair because a lot of their guys their rotation guys are so young but uh what are your expectations for this team
1: yeah no, i know i i am totally fine with them relying on internal growth especially with with the stars they have you know it's not like just a young team that they're like oh we're gonna get better you know they're not not the kings the magic right, it's not like, know. yeah you know they're not they're not like oh we have all these young pieces they're just naturally going to get get better like like Embiid was a better player from year one to year two ben simmons is a better player from october to april so guys like that it's just so rare to see future stars to, to kind of or future superstars. They're already stars plateau. So I think that's a totally viable uh, path to just expect them to, to add a few wins uh, to the win to the column uh, with, with just internal growth and, and improvement in certain areas. But I mean, at the same time you, you do run the risk of not of uh, maybe they do plateau, maybe an injury happens, something like that, but, but I'm pretty optimistic. I, I think I have them around 55 or 56 wins, a few more than last year, Obviously, that 16-game winning streak isn't likely to happen again. Uh, I don't think it was a fluke, but obviously you can't expect a team to win 20% of their games in a row. So uh, they also blew a ton of leads, especially earlier in the year, just huge leads. You don't expect them to, to blow this year after getting their feet wet in the playoffs and kind of gelling together as a young team. So I, I think they're going to be a better team than they were in October uh, compared to last. Like, I think if you take the team they have this year entering the year compared to the one they had last summer, they're a better team. But comparing them now to the April when they had Ilya Silva and Bellinelli, they might not be as good. But again, I mean, the, the buyout market's always always going to be there, so I'm confident they'll they'll be able to find something and uh, at, be a 55, 56 win team, even if there's not a 16 game winning streak there in the in the season.
0: Do you think 55, 56 wins is enough to push for the first seed and home court throughout the entirety of the uh, of the Eastern Conference playoffs, at least?
1: Yeah, I I think I. Th- I don't think number 1 seed is attainable. I think one of if not both Boston and Toronto are going to be be better. Uh I, I think Boston's kind of the safer bet there. I personally prefer Toronto a little bit in terms of long term uh, or I guess in the playoffs. But I think there'll be some feeling out period new coach. Uh obviously a new star in place is going to dominate a lot of the offense and, and things like that. Uh I I think the third seed is about where where they should be again, but I could honestly see them being a better having a bigger win total than toronto uh just because there's more continuity within that within that roster overall uh, and then i, I think i kind of have boston and toronto number one and two interchangeable however you want to do it and then i kind of have boston not boston philly milwaukee and indiana in that three four five tier with philly a little bit better than the the latter two but i would i wouldn't be totally shocked if somehow philly was the four but i think a a home court home court uh playoff series is probably in the cards it's, just, it's a pretty likely scenario in my opinion
0: so do you view this team as like a team that can make the Eastern Conference Finals? Like, I think that's their, I think if they make the Eastern Conference Finals, that's a huge deal. And obviously you never know what, with matchups and everything, who your opponent's going to be, it's possible that they could advance past that. But this team is is very young and um, the, the, rest, the rest of the top of the East is like very competitive and a little bit more experienced. So I don't know if it's like, I don't think it'd be fair to say like uh, Philly would be uh, favored in that series, but I definitely think it's possible if they get there do you think they they make it to the Eastern Conference Finals
1: uh I I don't truthfully but like you said I think part of the the beauty and and the issue with the Sixers are their best two guys are now going to be second and third year guys so they're going to be great for a long time but at the same time you look at Boston and and Toronto their their best players Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, uh, Al Horford, Kyle Lowry, uh, Kawhi Leonard they've all been there before they're they're kind of veterans at this point so uh, they have a little bit of the upper hand uh, right now. I I just can't see, I just can't see the Eastern conference uh, finals as a, as a viable uh, result right now. I just think they're just a leg down from, from those other two teams uh, above them. Yeah. Unless somehow Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and, and Marco Fold take a huge leap forward each, then then it's, it just seems unlikely. Um, uh, maybe, maybe the Kawhi experiment in Toronto goes awry and, and uh, Philly kind of luck, not lucks into, but stumbles in or walks into the number two seed. Uh, but I, I think a realistic expectation is, is the the Eastern Conference semifinals again, which might seem like some stagnation, but I think it's, it's a thing where you're going to have to look to see a lot of improvement from the guys to see what they can do uh, in the future. to See if this team ceiling is more of just a Eastern Conference finals and make the finals, or is it actually a title team? So I, I don't have them pegged as a, a top two team in the East or a top two finalist, but I wouldn't be all that surprised, even if it would be a little bit of a shock.
0: So you mentioned Embiid, you mentioned Ben Simmons, you mentioned Markel Fultz. I think it's fair to say those are the three really big keys for uh, the Sixers this season. Um, which of those three guys are you paying the most attention to uh, when the season starts?
1: I mean, it's got to be Markel Fultz. I mean, I, I think we know we know pretty much who Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are at least this year. Um, if you compare Ricky Ben Simmons to sixth-year Ben Simmons, then maybe it's a different story. But I think we're generally going to see more or less the same guys next season with just some improvements and, and certain flaws. Obviously, I don't expect Ben Simmons to become a, a jump shooter or anything, but I think we'll see some improvements there. We'll see some conditioning improvements and decision-making improvements from M B. But I think Fultz has to be the guy because he's kind of the key to to their future. Uh, I, 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 I think Simmons and MB are – are super talented guys but you you worry about maybe is that enough to win a title in, in three years or four years when they're kind of starting to hit their prime so I think it has to be folds can he shoot uh can he play uh how, how's the form look how do the mechanics look so I think he has to be the guy that Sixers fans and, and writers are are most invested in uh in that first preseason game and first regular season game and beyond
0: so what's what's a fair expectation for faults because he was so talented uh, coming out of Washington and then obviously had the the trouble with the yips and and the shot kind of going awry no one has seen like hiding nor hair what a shot looks like right now it's we like we just don't know there's an a, there's I think a general assumption that um, it can't be any worse than it was <laughs> last year and so uh, at very at the very least I'll be kind of like a an effective uh, young backup with the potential for more, but, like, what, yeah. what do you think a, a baseline level of, like, expectation is for Fultz next season? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where there's, there's nowhere to go but up, kind of like you said. Um, but I, I truthfully thought that his shot looked better when he came back. Uh, you compare his free throw r- rhythm, you compare just the general form. He, it still looked a little clunky, but it didn't look broken like it did in October when he played those first four games. So I, I have hope, but obviously it sounds like Drew Hanlon has kind of totally remade his shots, so maybe I should just throw out the, the few jump shots we saw uh, from Fulton his his late his late season stint. So I expect his jumper to be better. I think he's a guy it's gonna be a lot of a confidence based thing. I, I expect the form to be there, the mechanics to be there by October and in November, but you just you kinda hope that he has the confidence and self belief that he can he can come around a pick and roll and pull up at the free throw line or he can get the ball wide open on the wing and shoot a three. Um, so I think a good baseline, especially early in the year in his first, first 15 games or so, first 10 games or so is play 20, 23 minutes a night. He's going to get you 12 points, four rebounds, three and a half assists, stuff like that. Um, and, and maybe sprinkling a few jumpers and, and as the season wears on, he's going to be more comfortable shooting off the dribble, hitting those pull-ups, shooting more threes. But I, I don't think we can expect him to be that same dynamic scorer and offensive piece that he was coming out of. UW uh fifteen months ago. So I am generally optimistic. I i think he did a lot of really nice things in his in his kind of fake rookie season, whatever you want to call it, that that March and April stint. Obviously a lot of it came against lottery teams, but he still had some really nice uh moments against uh the Cavs and and the Bucks, obviously with that triple double in the final regular season game of the year. But I think I think expecting him to be kind of be a, a really nice bench piece for the, the first uh 15% of the season is, is a good baseline and don't expect him to be ho- shooting four or five threes a game like he did at UW so that's that's where I'm at but I expect him to be a lot better uh, come playoff time and come come post all-star break than he will be in the first game of the year
0: that's fair he did have I think it was against Denver he had like that one uh, like pull-up dribble off a pull-up shot off and off the dribble yeah, and you could you could like see it was his form was like completely fine and it went in. And you're like, oh, you you saw like okay, we get it. But like you said, Hanlon has completely remade a shot. We don't know what it'll look like. This is just so fascinating to me because this guy's the the number one overall pick. Like
1: and he was the consensus number one overall pick on a on a terrible team. They they won nine games and not not one throughout the year did, did most draft analysts or most smart draft analysts say I don't know about him being the number one pick. You know.
0: Right, and it's not like an Anthony Bennett situation where he played and he was terrible. Like <laughs> it's just like we—he's just a complete enigma at this point. And he, it's almost kind of uh, like as, as the year went on, he came became more and more of like a forgotten man. Yeah, like, he
1: had a, he had a bad rookie season, but wasn't because of his on-court play. You know, it right. wasn't—he wasn't a bad NBA player. He just had a bad year because he wasn't available and was going through some physical and mental issues.
0: Yeah, exactly. So. You wrote a great piece about maximizing Ben Simmons's, Ben Simmons's. (laughs) I never know how to
1: write that for the record. I never know when someone's last name has an S and you're doing like possessive thing. I never know if you write apostrophe and leave it or if there's another S. If someone wants to enlighten me on that, on that issue, then by all means, let me know. But that is one of my biggest writing uh, uh, misunderstandings or lack of understandings
0: so it's it's the apostrophe at the end, and then leave it just like hanging there, but when like you're saying it, it sounds simmons <laughs> Just
1: throw a bunch of z's on there and, and right. let, the, let the editors deal with it
0: <laughs> but uh you had a really nice piece about his offensive versatility um which is which is interesting because he he's such a I don't want to say limited, but he is kind of a limited offensive player in like where he you're willing to guard him from. So I guess I want to ask you for for Pistons fans who you know I've only seen like a couple games of Ben Simmons over the year. Uh, how how does Philly like using him on offense when he doesn't have the ball?
1: Yeah, I mean they didn't do a ton with him off the ball. Uh, they they kind of had some some pet plays. A lot of it was they would kind of run a like a back screen uh, and kind of try to get a a quick bucket on a post-up they try and catch the defender sleeping once he passed it once he passed the ball off um they try and get some quick hitting post-ups uh they had a f- they had some nice lob plays to him uh i've <laughs> i for some reason whatever reason there's been a theme in my writing uh with ben Simmons. i've kind of been enamored with how philly uses him off the ball i wrote a piece in march about how they how they do that now i wrote this one about how the, how the best path to maximize him more is um but i but i think the next step for him is is improving that post game I mean, he's he's six ten for crying out loud. Like he should be a competent post player. It's, he was a really good cutter in terms of points per possession, but it was a lot of design cuts and he, the instincts aren't quite there yet. He, he can clog up the paint a little bit. He likes to hang out kind of in that, in that quote unquote dunker spot, which is right outside the paint. Uh, he also drifts around the perimeter a lot. And so he can kind of make it four on five when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Uh, so I, I think using him more as a screener, uh, hoping he improves as a, as a post type guy more and, and impromptu cuts will be important, but I, I really think that, in terms of the coaching staff and how they can maximize him, is is using him as a role man in the pick and roll, uh, especially if Fultz is healthy. If Fultz is a dynamic pick and roll guard again, uh, letting Fultz kind of roll to the hoop, create for others, and a, and he'd probably him mean, he's he'd be the best uh, passing short role man in the league. Uh, kind of taking Draymond Green's role there. Um, and I, I I hate that I, I totally spaced on including that in my piece, but he just has so much potential. You, you get in the ball kind of seventeen feet away with a full head of steam, he's going to find the shooters: Sarage, Covington, Redick, uh, maybe even Embiid. So I, I think that's that's the best best way to use him. But he's so he's so big and explosive and strong that there's got to be there's got to be ways to use him that aren't just uh, as a spot up shooter because he's a point guard, but he's not a six three point guard who you expect to hit a ton of threes. He, he has so many gifted physical traits that there's more than just a uh, spot up shooting and off screen shooting to use him when he doesn't have the ball in his hands.
0: So I agree with you. I think he would be like an extremely dangerous short roller, especially since uh, the rest, like you said, the rest of the team with Saric and Covington and, and Redick you, that, that stretches the defense so much that you, you leave kind of a, in a drop in a, in a drop coverage, you'd leave like the center dealing with him rolling to the rim or like Embiid hanging out in the dunker spot. And like that's yeah. a that's a four on three that And yeah, and
1: Simmons is a really good finisher at the rim too. Primarily with his left with his right hand, excuse me, but but even if, if the defense kind of takes away his playmaking options, it's like I think he shot like seventy three percent at the rim or something last year. And it's like you just give you I mean you're you're basically saying he's seven out of ten times he's gonna hit a layup or something. So a lot of potential there.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I guess I've, we've been a little bit too positive throughout the entirety of this podcast. What, what's what's the biggest problem with the Sixers right now? I, I think,
1: truthfully, and I I read about this maybe, maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago, is there's not a ton of dependable and playable shooting outside the starting lineup. Uh, you know, Covington's obviously a great 3 and D wing. Sarge hit 39% or something beyond the arc last year. Reddick is is Redick. Uh, not much to say about him in terms of what he can do as a shooter. But beyond that, Wilson Chandler is a serviceable three-point shooter, uh, and the key there is playable. I mean, Landry Shamit can shoot the three, excellent shooter at Wichita State in his three years. Shake Milton is is a really good shooter too. Mike Muscala is too, but he's never had a huge role uh, on any of those Hawks teams. I think the maxi play was like eighteen to twenty minutes a night. So you, you just worry is there going to be enough playable shooting? Uh, because Bellinelli had his huge deficiencies in terms of shot selection and and anything defensively, but He was a really dynamic uh, offensive shooter, or I guess shooter. Shooting would imply offense anyways, but then Ilya Sobo is a really nice piece as well. They got exposed a little bit in the playoffs, especially Bellinelli, but that would be the biggest worry is when when one of Redick, Covington, or Saric is off the floor and you still have Simmons and Embiid, then you worry you might have three or four non-shooting threats or, or low shooting threats on the floor. And in today's NBA, obviously that's a bit of a, a death sentence for spacing and especially for a guy like Simmons who likes to have space to to do his thing as a as a ball handler and, and Embiid who likes to post up a lot you worry about how much success they'll have offensively
0: is there ever any uh consideration among fans to like bringing a Covington off the bench to alleviate some of that because like that was the first thing I thought it was just like start Chandler bring Covington off the bench as like a sixth man to kind of preserve spacing in like the second half of the first quarter or early part of the second quarter and then uh, let Covington close kind of give Chandler like a little bit more than the Keith Bogan's treatment, but, uh, (laughs) but like, you know, make sure Covington is, is integral to the second union as part of like helping out with spacing.
1: Yeah. uh, I, I think, I think that's definitely been explored a little bit within six year circles. Last year they actually had Sarge come off the bench when, 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 I think I think Fultz started. I can't remember, but I know, I know starts came off the bench for, for a while there and he wasn't, wasn't great off the bench, but uh, the most, the most viable path, I think, uh, and one of my colleagues at uh, Liberty ball, has heard about this uh, Adam Aronson is Covington's actually been better at the four. Uh, so the, the idea there might be to bring Sarge off the bench. He can do a little more off the dribble than, than Covington. He's still a pretty dang good shooter. Uh, not quite the defensive uh, piece not nowhere close to Covington but he can do more off the dribble he's a better passer uh, at at, at worst equal shooter he shot better last season from three so I think that would probably be the solution if anything if you're going to take one of those three shooters among reddick Sarge and Covington out of the starting lineup he's probably the guy there uh, but I, but I do think there's definitely some creativity and, and options they should try to explore to get one of their three best shooters to to kind of uh, uh, alleviate some of those issues like you said
0: i think um, i would be concerned with the defensive prowess of like a sarich muscala front court even yeah. in like short minutes So, like that's why i was thinking more covington but like i could see that you're right they did bring uh sarich off the bench i had forgotten about that but um yeah he just he seems just like a slight bit more uh, versatile than than Covington offensively for what the six yeah and mean. You, and
1: you, you st- I mean you still do worry about Covington being uh defending traditional forward a lot I mean he he's a yeah. great defender but he's his value isn't just as an on-ball defender he's a really good help defender really plays the passing way- lanes well Most you know
0: flexions like, yeah the league in uh, yeah I mean, he's
1: really and all that I mean you think of a lot of first team all-nba guys defensive guys they're generally renowned for their on-ball defense but he's more of a holistic defender you know he's a really good team defender so and he's he's not he's a little bit slight of frame too so you worry about a guy like a a traditional force or or even like tobias harris or something like that kind of just bowling him on the block and taking him down low uh or lebron or things like that so uh you you worry there but i i think there's definitely some things they should try to explore while they can in the regular season before uh somebody like the celtics the raptors the Pacers kind of exploits maybe one of their deficiencies in terms of shooting or, or lineup constructions.
0: So speaking of like off the bench shooting, what's up with Jared Bayless? Like they were going to stretch him in order to sign a free agent. They never signed any huge free agents. Is he just like not going to play? He just fell out of the rotation. Like what's, what's going on with that?
1: Yeah. I think he's just a guy who's just not going to play. He kind of fell out of the rotation and they were a lot better when he didn't play very much. Uh, I think that's another reason to be optimistic about the Sixers this year. I mean, he's a guy who started games for them last year when Reddick went down. Uh, He started 11 games. Uh, He's a a good shooter, but beyond that, he doesn't provide a ton. He's not a great decision maker. He's pretty dang bad defensively, uh, not a great passer. uh, And at this point, there's just better options that you can find, especially you can find young guys on the Sixers bench that can provide that same value with more upside. So I think he's a guy who I wouldn't be surprised to get waived, or stretched, or traded, some point in the year. I obviously I'm not really in tune with uh, NBA developments, but I but I, I I feel comfortable and confident saying that's probably something they're they're looking to do, and and it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later if they can find a trade partner. Um, but yeah, he he just didn't didn't provide a ton ton for them. He just was beyond his shooting. Just didn't 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 make an impact in the, in the box score for him. And, and uh, on the court.
0: Yeah. The, the Pistons have uh, a guy functionally like identical to that in Langston Galloway. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's a, it's a pain to try and find uh, a trade partner that needs like a, an $8 million a wing a year wing who like doesn't do anything, but like make threes. So it's <laughs> kind of tough. Like I don't, and I don't know how many other teams are going to be looking to uh, like, quote unquote, help Philly out by taking on a Jared Bayless but uh i will definitely like be interested in that as as the year progresses cuz i think that's definitely like a spot where they they could upgrade and uh and like make themselves a better team so what's the uh, what's the best case scenario for this philly team
1: yeah you know i think i think we kind of alluded to it and touched on it earlier but i think making the easter conference finals would would be the best case scenario in terms of this season but i truthfully would rather if I was given the choice of either making the Eastern Conference Finals or making it to the to the same same round as last year, the second round and having Marco Fultz have a functional jump shot, I think ten times out of ten in terms of the long term view, you have to take that. But I, I but I think the Eastern Conference Finals is a is the uh, the optimistic optimistic view. You hope you don't hope but you, you you bank on Toronto's experiment not quite working out as much as you as they originally intended. So I, I'd say that's that's the uh that's the ceiling. The finals just seems too out of reach. Uh you you're pretty pretty much confident that one of Boston and Toronto is gonna be really, really, really good next year, uh, a tier above Philly. So I'd say making the Eastern Conference finals would be a would be looked on as a successful season, but uh I think uh full time and a jump shot would be even more successful, even if they only make it to the, the second round again.
0: So would that make, like, the worst-case scenario, like Fultz having kind of the same rookie year he did last year? Or, like, what what's the worst-case scenario for Philly?
1: Worst-case scenario is something like, I mean, there's <laughs> I mean this is very much like a the 0. .0007% or something of happened. I mean, maybe not that low, but worst-worst case is Fultz isn't very good again. He, he doesn't shoot a lot. Uh, he, he's kind of a liability as an on-ball defender. Uh, teams don't respect him as a shooter. And then beyond that, maybe teams have figured out how to guard Ben Simmons a little more, so he's not quite as effective. Joel Embiid gets injured or something. So there's there's definitely some uh, volatility with, with the Sixers, uh, obviously, probably even more so than, than Toronto or, or Boston uh, or even India or Indiana or Milwaukee. So I'd say that's the worst, worst case, but I'd say just worst case scenario, and I'm using the word worst a lot, but one single worst would be would be marco Phillips not refine not rekindling that jump shot
0: that made me realize we we haven't really talked about joel Embiid so much this (laughs) podcast i mean there's 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 a lot to say as far as like his his on-court play goes he's he was a top three defensive player of the year finalist he he made an all-nba team right like he was
1: yeah i think he was second team i i can't i can't say for sure but i know he made an all-nba team i'll i'll find it
0: right now but uh level score uh, like great defensively great rebounder it's just like uh the only concern that anyone has around him is is around his health and that's impossible to predict and I don't want to uh pre- like go negative and I don't want to predict like he only plays 50 plus 52 games or whatever he played last year and so it, it feels bad to be to ask you like will Joel and get hurt like how many games will he play but, uh, like, do you think if I, if I like shift it around a little bit, um, like, do you think this team is still like a top three team? And still like the top of the second tier in the East if Embiid only plays like 50 games?
1: 50 is a little, is a little bit on the low end for me in terms of banking on them being a top three or four team. Mm-hmm. And he played 63 last year and they just, oh, that's weak- way more
0: than I thought. Never mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, he, he, um, he, he had some like weird, not weird, but he's had some big condition issues uh right before the new year because he just started to play back to back for the first time. And so his body was kind of reacting negatively to that. But after after kind of the new that, that Christmas Day game against the Knicks was kind of the turning point after that, he and the Sixers were pretty dang uh dominant as a team. So I, I I don't think fifty would would be enough for me to say they could still be a top three, but if you give him you give him sixty, uh I would say they could still be top three. I wouldn't bank on it, but, but I, I would feel confident that and saying that they could still still reach that. But, but truthfully, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about Embiid's health this year. I think it's his first healthy off season. Uh, I think a lot of his injury issues, at least since he's, since his debut uh, nearly two years ago have stemmed from just a lack of condition. He's had a huge workload offensively and defensively, and he's never really had great condition in the off season to, to fully uh, be ready for that type of workload. So First healthy offseason I expect him to play probably a little closer to to 36 minutes than he did to 30 this year. I'd say 33 is about a pretty pretty solid estimate, split the difference. Uh and I just expect him to his conditioning to be better. That's another reason I think the Sixers are gonna be a better team overall this year is because they kind of floundered when Embiid was in and out of the lineup uh, in October and in November and December, excuse me. So I, I would I would bank on him playing about I'd say 73 is about right. Give him some rest days and maybe every now and then just, just to kind of let him, let him be fresh for the playoffs. Um, cause even then last year, he only played 75 games or whatever, including the playoffs. I think even less than that. So I, I, I'm confident that he's going to stay healthy, but I, but I think he's gonna have to play more than 50 for the Sixers to be a top three seed.
0: That's fair. The conditioning is something I hadn't really thought of, but I definitely remember that being an impact during his, his true rookie year. Um, when he only played what, like games, thirty something games,
1: 31 is rookie year, yeah. and the con- when the conditioning really, really wasn't issue, in terms of this last season, it was against the the Thunder. I, I think it was either late November or early December. They they played this monstrous three OT game on ESPN. It was it was awesome to watch, but Embiid played like fifty minutes or something, and that was just absurd. And and he was kind of tanked for the next two, three weeks. And you could just tell towards the end, I think they lost and you could just tell towards the end, Stephen Adams had just worn him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he previously been given Stephen Adams the business offensively. So uh, that was kind of when it came to a T this year. And then he was in and out of the lineup there for a little bit, but conditioning is a huge issue that because, because a lot of this post game is pretty uh, taxing. He just has, he just has possessions where he's like, I, I can't do anything with the ball right now. Like I I just went, I just held the ball for 12 seconds last possession and then re- rejected a shot at the rim like like someone else had to do something, which, again, is a reason that that Fultz is going to be so important because if you can find someone who can create their own shot beyond Embiid, it's going to give him so much more freedom defensively and, and p- possessions off offensively to, to kind of uh, improve his stamina and whatnot. So conditioning is kind of probably the biggest point of emphasis place I'm most excited to see him improve this year.
0: All right, so Jackson, this is the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. We do have to talk about the Pistons <laughs> a little bit. Uh, so, from from afar, from like a Philly and an NBA perspective, what have your thoughts been about the last like six months for the Detroit Pistons? Uh, that's the Blake Griffin trade. That's firing Stan Van Gundy and hiring Dwayne Casey. That's uh, completely like revamping the front office. Anything they did in free agency, like what, what's your perception of what the Pistons are doing?
1: I think generally, it's it, I've I've been pretty pretty happy and and, and just pleasantly surprised with what they've done recently. Uh, and there's a I, mean, I think I think Blake Griffin's contract obviously is is massive and and whatnot, but I think it's also a little overstated. He's <coughs> he's very very good at basketball, obviously. So I mean you kind of have to bite the bullet sometimes if you want to land that star. Uh, Tobias Harris is really good, but obviously he's never going to reach the the uh, the peak that Blake Griffin can provide for you. Dwayne Casey was an awesome hire. Um, I liked their off season. I thought, I guess, I guess it wasn't super flashy, but Glenn Robinson's a good player. Uh, he can defend, he can shoot the three pretty well. She's a little bit off the dribble in terms of attacking closeouts. So I think he, he's the guy that I, I think will provide some nice depth on the wing. Obviously, I know that's a pretty, pretty divisive and not maybe a little bit polarizing. Who's going to start the three between him and Stanley Johnson, uh, but I think Kennard's gonna have a, a better uh second year, even if people don't think he's good because he's not Donovan Mitchell. Uh the the issue is that you worry that their first and third best players and and Griffin and, and Reggie Jackson don't have a history, at least recently, of staying healthy for eighty two games. And if if one or both of those guys goes down, uh the Pistons just aren't good enough to to be a playoff team without those guys. So I'm optimistic. I think I have the Pistons seventh right now in my Eastern Conference rankings. I go I go Toronto, Boston, Philly, Indy, Milwaukee, Washington, Detroit, Miami would be my eight. Uh, but, but I like the pieces. I think they have, they have they have a fine big three in terms of making the playoffs in the East among uh, Reggie Jackson, Blake Griffin, Andre Drummond. Uh, Reggie Bullock's a really, really good uh, kind of three and D wing. Glenn Robbins is a nice piece. Canard can shoot it. So they have, they have enough pieces there, assuming health, to be a playoff team. Uh, Dwayne Casey is a really good Dwayne a really good fire or higher, not fire, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I, I I generally think what Detroit's done in terms of trying to be a playoff team for the next two or three years over the last six months has been has been in the right direction. Uh,
0: I think you you hit the nail on the <laughs> head with the with the with the thing that Pistons fans are most concerned about, which is health. Um, I think it, it's definitely fair to say, like you can't expect both of Blake and Reggie to play uh, like seventy games. But uh, I think the key is they both they can't get hurt at the same time. Like you you can kind of stay afloat I think without one or the other for like 10-ish games or so. But if either one of them goes down uh, or is down for like an extended period, um, holes definitely start to like appear along uh, in the Pistons backcourt. With uh, we've we've seen that Ish Smith, while while uh, an effective backup point guard, just isn't his game doesn't uh, suit itself well to starting and if Blake Griffin goes down the Pistons will be like starting John Luer and like with Henry Ellenson backing him up at power forward and like that's a huge concern and then you'll start seeing maybe maybe Casey will be a little bit more flexible about this than Stan Van Gundy was and you hope you see some like Stanley Johnson at four lineups or or something like that to kind of uh, alleviate that but I I think you hit the nail on the head with uh, with the major concern among Pistons fans being health
1: what, uh, what's the narrative around Ellenson? I, I can't say I'm really in tune with a lot, a lot with his de- development. I know he's been a little underwhelming, so, but what, what's the consensus for Pistons fans and Pistons riders with Ellenson? Do they still think he can be a rotation piece.
0: So Ellenson is a, a question mark at this point. There is a sense that um, Stan Van, one of like Stan Van Gundy's parting uh, quote unquote gifts to the team was like not doing a good job of uh, developing him this past year. Um, keeping him on the pro roster and never really giving him any uh time after like the first 10 games or so um and not like sending him down to the g league to get developed there or anything like that um essentially like leaves us in a place where we're not fully sure what to expect from henry it doesn't help that he didn't have a good uh summer league you'd like a third year player to be like much more effective than he was uh during the summer but he's also uh, reforming his shot he um his guide hand was like sitting on top of the ball. Um, There's this really ugly picture on my Twitter of him. Like just his hand is like literally his his whole left hand is like covering 12 o'clock on the ball. Which is funny
1: because Al Horford kind of shoots that same way. But I mean, obviously you can't, you can't expect that formula to work for everyone, but, but Al Horford kind of has that weird thing where his right, his right hand or his left hand, excuse me, comes way over the ball. But yeah, I just asked because I know, I know James Edwards of the Athletic wrote a couple of pieces about Ellington, and I just don't know a lot about him. And uh, one of the things that struck out, being that, I, or stuck out to me that I read was that uh, that Ellington like played pretty well in their their opening game of the year last year against uh, uh, Charlotte, against Charlotte, like thirteen points, five of ten shooting, hit a couple threes, and then we just a DMP the next night uh, for whatever reason. So that just, I mean, that just baffled me. I'm sure it was weird for some some fans, and obviously you have to go beyond the box score to see what. What yeah. happened but i just remember that was a really weird reading that was really weird you think like a second year guy who scored 13 points in his his for the first game of his sophomore year would would get a little more uh leeway and run after, after that
0: that that was a definitely like a major critique of stan van gundy was that he did not give young guys enough a leash uh canard kind of it, you could really tell how special canard was by the fact that van gundy trusted him pretty consistently throughout the entirety of the year um Ellenson, like I said, played the, like the first 10 games. And then uh, if you recall, Anthony Tolliver was like, uh, he was a really big piece for the Pistons and right. uh, they, they lost him in free agency. But uh, his versatility uh, defensively and uh, the consistency with, with uh, he was a threat on the perimeter was was more valuable to a team that was chasing the playoffs in Stan Van Gundy's mind than uh, you know spending the time to develop Henry Ellinson. And so they're in the position now where like you, you really need him to play uh, because there's no more security blanket. Your security blanket is uh, is John Luehr, and like that's that's barely a security blanket at all.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking of Tolliver, I think it was a couple of nights ago, uh, maybe three days ago, I was I was watching the uh, the Pistons Lakers game from late in the year, and and Tolliver just got like super hot in the third quarter, early fourth, and just kind of buried the Lakers. I don't know why. I remember that, but uh, yeah, he's Tolliver is a a pretty dang good player, and Tim Roll has got a good a good piece in him again. Yeah, that
0: that Lakers game late in the year is, I think, the the best example of like what Stan Van Gundy's vision of a of a team led by Reggie Jackson, uh, Blake Griffin, and Andre Drummond looks like. Uh, Blake didn't have like a his best game of the year. He got kind of punked by uh, Julius Randle a little bit. Yeah, oh my, but,
1: God. yeah, he did. That was, I mean, I've watched Randall, but even when, like he his his play style is just so jarring because like, he's just gonna literally run into your chest every time down. Unless you do something about it, and it was just—it was so weird to watch. I mean, I've seen it enough, but you watch a whole game and you're like, "Holy moly!" Like, like no yeah, wonder just, guys are probably in the ice tub after after facing Randall for 35 minutes a night.
0: Yeah, Blake Griffin did not play another game for the Pistons after that game. I mean, they <laughs> they, they were eliminated from the playoffs and everything, so there was no need. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Randall really did a number on him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think he, I think he fouled out, and I remember Blake didn't play a ton, which was kind of a bummer because I I wanted to see more of that that Drummond and, and Griffin dynamic, but. Um, I guess I'll watch some more, some more Pistons games in the the uh, of the coming months. I watched a few when they when the, the trade happened, but you always know, like a refresher because that's a, that should be a fun, a fun tanner especially with the passing they can they pr- can provide and maybe Drummond's new outside shot. That'd be a pretty, pretty uh modern, modern offensive uh big man duo.
0: Oh man, don't get Pistons fans started on uh, Andre Drummond shooting threes. It's very <laughs> divisive. Very divisive.
1: Yeah, I mean right. is is it gonna happen? Like is that
0: the thing? <laughs> so he seems like he wants to, and Casey seems like the type of coach who would let him. So the answer is like yes with a question mark. Uh, uh, uh yeah. The, the planned over under on like uh attempts per game is like 1.2 because like Valentina shot like 73s last year. And like you could give you could maybe give Dre like 73s to see if it works or not.
1: Yeah, I I'm I'm interested to see what happens there, but uh yeah, <laughs> yeah when that when that first thing came out when he was in, in the gym shooting those step back three that that just cracked me up.
0: Oh yeah, people are people are not happy about that. The, <laughs> the ask for Andre Drummond for like three years has been like just be better defensively, just focused uh every <laughs> possession defensively. Yeah. And so of course the first Instagram story of off season workouts is him shooting two hundred corner threes. Why not? Exactly. <laughs> All right, Jackson, I want to thank you uh, for your time. I want to thank you for coming on and uh, uh, educating us about the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, where's the best p- place for people to to follow you and your work?
1: Uh, Yeah, so to just find me it would be on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. And then you can find most of my NBA work at Liberty Ballers, B-Ball Breakdown, and coming soon, whenever the site launches, B-Ball Index, I'll be writing about the Nuggets there. Uh, and then a lot of my more print journalism and, and feature writing will be, uh, you can follow, you can follow my newspaper, uh, at Gonzaga bulletin. Uh, I do a lot more long form talking to sources and stuff like that, rather than just blogging and doing film work. So, uh, my NBA work, uh, B-Ball Breakdown, Liberty Ballers, B-Ball Index, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and obviously I, I'm Lazarus Jackson. You can find me on Twitter uh at last chance that's at l-a-z-c-h-a-n-c-e i host the podcast you are currently listening to and i i write for detroit bad boys um that's it for the podcast we will be previewing the washington wizards with uh with michael sykes of uh of bullets forever uh this time coming up i forget what the exact date is i'll get that's, quite, that's
1: quite the uh quite the team to talk about
0: yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to uh, <laughs> talking about how that locker room is going to implode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Thanks again, Jackson. Yeah. And, thank uh, you we, me. we will see you guys uh, later.